Talking Flutes Extra with me, the flute tutti guy Jean Paul Wright. The intro music this week was Bessame and played on our TJ Alto flute by the wonderful flute player Giovanni Perez. Now, due to the popularity of a recent podcast, when I went up on the train to London to visit the multi instrumentalist Theo Travis, I've decided today to get in my car from the TJ Flute HQ based in Lenham in the county of Kent, otherwise known as the Garden of England, and to travel north, and I reckon it'd be about 45 minutes today, to the town of Tunbridge, where I'll be having a chat with London freelance orchestral flute player and jiu-jitsu black belt Ian Mullin about his flute playing with all the leading London orchestras, his business experience in the flute world, as well as finding out if there is indeed any correlation with his music study, performance and martial arts. It's a very cold day today and I'm just going to be just going to see whether the car starts first time. It could be quite a long and embarrassing podcast if I'm sat in the car waiting for breakdown to arrive. Here goes. Great. First time. Perfect. I'll speak to you again soon. Right, I finally arrived in Tunbridge and the rather beautiful abode of Ian. Hi Ian. Hi, John Paul. Nice to see you. And you, it's been a long time, hasn't it? Yeah, it has been a while. It's been uh, how long? It must have been over a year. Yeah, at least. Yeah, good and year. So much has yeah, good year. So much has changed. The big changes, yeah, but exciting. Very exciting for you, yeah. And yeah. we'll cover that in a second. But firstly, I'm actually looking out of your lounge window, and you have a gorgeous balcony. Yeah, it's it's not quite as the former glory from the summer, but uh, it's a nice space. I've got some uh, a couple of rose bushes and other bits and pieces, and it's just a couple of deck chairs just to look over the park and and the the water actually because they, they have a canoeing club just down the road, so it's quite peaceful to see canoes and and boats go past. You can't quite I don't know you you can because you're probably agile enough, but if you could jump over those trees, would it be possible to land in the river? <laughs> I haven't tried it yet. It's uh, it's probably a bit cold now to do that anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and uh, a shout out for your coffee, by the way. Thank you. So, Ian, obviously I know some of your backstory, but our listeners don't, because we met many years ago on the... I think it was, was it the Stratford? Yeah, it was a Stratford, uh, Stratford-upon-Avon fleet course that Elena, and, Elena Duran and Michael used to run. Um, so that was a long time ago, just after college. So I guess it would be um, probably... 15 years ago, maybe even more. Oh, you're, you're a pup. Yeah. And I was still old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if we take you back to the beginning, when and why did you first start playing the flute? So uh, I played the recorder at primary school. I had an amazing teacher called Mrs. Haddy, I believe. Always um, known as Mrs. or Mr. Mrs. Haddy was the name. And I remember she had a crazy black curly wig. She was quite an, an elderly lady by the time that I came across her at primary school. But she, she ran a fantastic recorder group and I really got into that. And my parents kind of invested in some expensive recorders. I had the wooden Moek recorders, which I really enjoyed. Oh, wow. And I played everything from uh, by ear, 
played everything orally when I was really, really young. So I just just really loved music. And then when it came to kind of thinking about going on to another instrument, um, the flute was kind of an obvious choice. At that time, Galway was very prevalent and, and affecting lots of people in, you know, in my generation. And um, the other thing that instigated it was that there was a the headmaster of my primary school used to play the flute, clarinet and saxophone very badly. But um, I, he offered to give me flute lessons. Uh, and what I used to do was go and queue outside of his office for uh, in the lunchtime when he had time to give me a 10 minute lesson on tuna day. And very quickly, he kind of saw that I had some potential and he wanted me to go to a proper flute player. So then I moved to another teacher after that. But for the first initial beginnings, that was how it happened, was standing outside of his office, uh, not being in trouble, but going for a flute lesson. And your age was? Uh, I think I started when I was about nine, or maybe just, yeah, just before ten. So not as early as some people, but, you know, a, a sensible age to start playing a wind instrument. That was your some of your biggest influences at school. When yeah. you went to big school... yeah. Who was your teachers then? Because obviously they must have done something to excite or ignite that passion in you. Yeah, I, I had a teacher um, who was like my flute mum, and she still is to a certain degree. I see her every now and again. Carol Jenna Timms is her name now. She was Carol Timms at the time. Um, and she, her parents used to live around the corner from my parents in uh, Henley's. And she didn't really have time or any slots to f- fit me in. But I went, I had to audition to see what I was about and so I did went and played to her and she managed to squeeze me in on a Tuesday evening so that was my flute lessons I had all the way through high school uh, 11 to 18 was with Carol and she was the one that got me into college uh, and also introduced me to a couple of other people that that had an influence towards um, going to for music college auditions she got me in touch with uh, Sebastian Bell who went on to be my first teacher at the academy and I went to have a consultation lesson at his house um, in a beautiful place, uh, Eel Pie Island in Twickenham, yes. where you walk over the footbridge. And uh, and having lessons at his house at college as well, a lot of his ideas, I think, came from, like we are looking over the water now, but his house literally was on stilts overhanging the water, the River Thames. And he had a boat yard as well, and he used to take people up and down on the boat. But being so close to water is very relaxing, and the idea of vibrato and, and sound and everything, I think a lot of that came from, from water. But they, they were really my biggest influences. And also I did a, a flute course in the summer before my audition that had a big influence on me. It was called In Search of Inspiration. That was with Wissam. Oh, yes, the wonderful so, Wissam. So at that age, he was incredibly inspirational, you know, trying to get everybody to play from memory and just bring everybody out of their shell. So... I went in and, and obviously did a, an okay audition at the academy and, and, and got the, the place that I wanted to, to go to at Music College. The academy was my first choice. Oh, what made you choose a Royal Academy of Music in London? Because um, that's very... notoriously difficult to get into. Yeah, no, but it was another story from when I was at school. I went to a cathedral school, went to Bristol Cathedral. And when I was 14, um, Wib William Bennett came to my school to give a recital. And um, he, I think he was quite good friends with the canon of, of the cathedral and they'd known each other a long time. So he invited him to this concert. And it was quite expensive to go to this concert. And uh, there was some poshy dinner that the ticket price was tied to. So the canon found out that I was interested and he said, well, if you hand out tickets or programmes, you can come for free and I'll introduce you to Wib in the interval. And that's that's what happened And Ever since that day of hit listening to Wib, you know, back in the day when I was 14, so that must have been, you know, 25, 26 years ago, Wib sounded amazing, you know, in, and in the cathedral, that sound just, you know, blasted across the mm-hmm. whole 
whole of the cathedral and it was just a very inspirational point and and I remember Wib signed my program and my last day at the academy I saw Wib in in the in the pub uh, the <laughs> Prince Regent just down the way from the academy and I showed him the program that he'd signed he, he, he didn't remember at the time but um, he thought it was very sweet that I kept this program and that was the reason why I wanted to go to the to the academy. And who did you study with the academy, at the academy, obviously apart from Baz? So I had Baz for three years and in my third year I split lesson times. I had half with Baz and I had half with a teacher that just started teaching the academy and I think I was the guinea pig to try him out. I tried out a few different teachers for Baz just to see who, you know, try some people out and get some feedback. And, and I had a lesson with Jaime Martin. Oh, yeah. And um, Jaime really, I think, is the biggest influence of my flute playing. Uh, generally that's unusual yeah. I mean I've heard Jaime when he yeah. played at the um, was it the Royal Opera he played at English National Opera English National sorry yeah. and I mean the guy is just musical you hear the music yeah. and you hear the passion yeah. before you actually hear the note yeah. but it's, you're the first person English person that yeah. has chosen Jaime as being their biggest influence well I just I just hit it off with him straight away and he the, the learning curve uh, an improvement from the lessons that I had in my third year. For instance, we just worked on sonority a lot for the first few weeks and months, and maybe two thirds or a three quarters of the lesson was just Jaime almost carrying me around the room working on sonority and efficiency of airstream to get the maximum amount of sound, the purest sound, without having to blow your brains out, basically. And then when you put stuff up on the up on the stand, something technical or a study or even a repertoire everything works you're not fighting against the instrument you just become one with the music and it seems a lot less effort and also he he started giving me gigs when I was at college and I did quite a lot of work with him for two or three four years outside of college where I sat next to him and and learned a lot on the job as well so for that start in the profession I'm incredibly grateful for Jaime but it was more that he at that time he was really playing amazingly he was playing with four or five major orchestras, including Chamber Orchestra of Europe and the Royal Philharmonic and, and all these top orchestras and and playing all the time. And, and he, he just sounded incredible. And, and being in a small practice room in the academy, subject to that every week, you know, standing two or three feet away from that ridiculous noise and trying to <laughs> emulate that as a student was really... Uh, I was very fortunate to have him at that time as well when... He just started a family. He was very busy, but he wasn't really that well known yet as a teacher. Um, I think I was one of his, if not his first student in London at, at one of the colleges. So it was it was a very special time for me anyway. And uh, I learned an incredible amount from him. How did he manage to keep you focused on sonorities without you getting bored, without you losing focus? Because from my own perspective, when I was studying with Jim Dow in London many, many years ago, I would struggle with maintaining anything other than five or ten minutes. If I wasn't getting the note that my head was hearing, then my brain would just sort of switch off and the voice would come in. How did you manage to spend so much time focused? Um, Because the the results were there. And so if it sounds much better, you're willing to put the time in. It's when you're kind of bashing your head against the wall and you're not really getting, you know, that, that is a worthwhile process as well. But... With the sonority stuff, there was an immediate uh, difference in the quality of sound. Are we talking um, moist sonority? Sorry. Um, similar, yeah, similar, similar to the moise in terms of just doing semitones. I've adapted that as I've got slightly older, but basically, yeah, we we did the sonority starting on middle B 
and going down by semitone and repeating the exercise. And what Jaime used to do that was different to other teachers is the level of listening in terms of he would put his cheek over my fingers because the cheek's very sensitive to feel how much air was escaping off, off the flute through Good the grief. holes so that he could really feel what air, how much air I was using and whether I was being efficient with that. Having that level of being honest with your sound and yourself, uh, not just going through the motions, um, it just it, my sound improved dramatically within three or four months. And it, it was noticeable that when I played in the orchestra, the academy or symphony orchestra or whatever, the sound projected much further because it, I was being much more efficient with it. And it, it the, the purity of the sound meant that it would, even after I was playing super quietly, it would actually project to the back of the hall, whereas before it would kind of, you know, stop about halfway or in, in the stalls in the front of the of the hall. But you do have a very large sound anyway, but you also have a very delicate sound. You know, it's very pure. Yeah. And you credit Jaime with... Yeah. Uh, well, there's lots of teachers that, that you know, really... Fit. I mean, another great person that, that focuses on the extremes is Mike Cox and he's oh, yeah. an amazing flute player and teacher and you know he works on the extremes that even if you only ever use 85% of your extremes in a, in a normal playing situation it's still much bigger than most people's dynamic range and that's the way to kind of think of it in practice I mean the thing that I've found with lots of people can play the flute loudly and lots of people play the flute like they're shouting down the flute mm. and trying to tell you a message. Absolutely, yeah. But Look at the, me, look at me, look at most, me. <laughs> the most impressive thing is actually when you're playing super quietly and there's nothing else going on, say if you're in the Albert Hall and you're playing a solo and there's nothing else going on, pianissimo or piano, and it's almost like a black hole that you suck the audience into your sound rather than having to kind of dictate or point your finger at them telling them what, what you're doing. And for me, that's a far more impressive skill than actually playing super loud. Um, Interesting you said about the Albert Hall, because that is one... It's such a special place, the Albert Hall, isn't it? Well, it's a special place and it's a duff acoustic. I mean, it's like it's like playing in a shed. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's so difficult to hear what's going on on stage with the risers and you're so spread out. But And it's not the best for the flute. Uh, I mean, what what's really impressive is when you hear orchestras and, and soloists play that. I mean, I remember going to hear... Pahud play um, with BBC Welsh a few years ago doing a concerto and it was ridiculous that you could still hear his bottom register and it didn't sound forced but it filled the hall which is <laughs> is a very difficult task you know to do that without sounding aggressive or or it sounding harsh you know it was still a big beautiful round sound so um, yes yeah, if you can do it in the Albert Hall really then you can do it anywhere yeah what was it like when you got your first paid London orchestral gig? Who was it with? And can you remember the programme? Yeah, I um, still remember it. It's one of the best things I've ever done still to this day. And it was very exciting because it was last minute where Jaime had tried to get me on a trip with um, the Academy of St. Martin's the year before Ooh. in my third year. And, and they'd already fixed, the, fixed the, the player for that piece of work. But he was basically he was rewarding me because in my third year, after a few months with him, I'd got into the European Youth Orchestra. So then at that point, he decided to start giving me professional work, which I was very fortunate. There wasn't that many people at college doing that, especially in the flute department. What it was was somebody was ill and I got a phone call. Can you come to Paris tomorrow? Uh, and it was Chamber Orchestra of Europe. Uh, was sensational orchestra and it was four <laughs> flutes and everybody was Spanish apart from me so it was another two of Jaime's students that were older in, in jobs and the programme was Rameau Suites with Franz Bruggen 
And the other thing that happened was that, well, as soon as we got there in Paris, I think it was in Paris, um, Jaime kind of called me to his hotel room and, and he sort of said, have you got your piccolo with you? And I was like, yes. And um, I know that Jaime doesn't really like playing the piccolo and there was a piccolo part in one of the other flute parts. So it was basically four flutes, sometimes in unison and then two parts. There was two piccolos that had to play in unison, which is what I ended up doing in part of the, the suite. So it was an amazing experience. It was so easy to play with the orchestra because everybody played perfectly in tune. And I just kept my head down and just followed everybody else in terms of stylistic stuff, which was, was quite hard even for an orchestra like that, having somebody like Franz Bruggen. It was still like being at school in a certain way that he was incredibly knowledgeable about that kind of period music obviously and um, so it was playing in a very beautiful stylized way in a section often in unison which was I learnt far more in that week than probably four years at the academy to be honest. How long did it take you to come down afterwards? <laughs> oh, I think I'm still I think I'm still there I think it's about <laughs> 20 years uh, no I mean it, it was a it was an amazing way so the orchestra couldn't believe um, some of the people in the orchestra were asking you know is this your first gig with with COE and, and then I said well no this is my first gig ever and they couldn't quite believe it but I mean it was it was the trust and uh, the belief that Jaime had in, in my ability that was the most special thing to me I mean having an amazing experience like that but also that he kind of trusted me not to make a mess of the concert and um, and to play well which hopefully I did but um, yeah, it was a very special start to um, my professional career. Instead of a little tiny orchestral gig that paid 30 quid in a local church, European chamber orchestra. I remember it because we, we, I think in that orchestra, everybody gets paid a similar amount. So in most orchestras, it's a hierarchy and yeah. all the rest of it. But with COE, it's slightly different. But I remember buying a brown leather jacket with a colleague who I did a gig with recently, actually. <laughs> he still and, got it. And I haven't still got it, unfortunately. But it was I was treating myself, and it was £150, this jacket. And it was a lot of money for me as a student at the academy. But it was one day's fee tour of the tour. So I thought I should splash out and, and buy myself a, a proper grown-up leather jacket. So that's, that, that's another thing I remember from that tour. <laughs> And on the back of that, you played with all the London orchestras, I believe. Yeah, most most of them, most of the orchestras. And yeah. in some of the world's most glamorous venues. So in your very short career, because you're still a pup. Yeah. I know you'll probably say you're older, but you're still a pup compared to me. Yeah. What's been your most outstanding moment so far? And you've done a lot. Yeah, I don't know whether I can choose one outstanding moment. I mean, something that happened maybe two or three years ago that wasn't a particularly amazing orchestra, but it was a charity gig. And they had uh, Simon Rattle was involved as a, a benefactor or a patron. And he came to conduct half the concert. And it was a time where I wasn't as confident with my playing. And uh, it was a kind of a, a bit of a down time for me in, in the career-wise. And um, we played Mother Goose, uh, Ravel. And I remember after the, or the, after the rehearsal... Simon kind of made a beeline and, and walked straight through the orchestra towards me and shook my head and hand and said, thank you for your beautiful playing. And at the time, he was conducting the Berlin Phil and Emmanuel Pahoud is one who's one of my idols and, and god on the flute. And for, for him to kind of come up and, you know, make the effort to say, you know, that he enjoyed my playing, I think I could have put the flute in the box and, and never played again and retired. You know, it was a very special thing. And it was a time as well that it did a lot of, my confidence and everything at that at that point that's interesting you're playing with a lot of orchestras yeah you're playing you're doing a lot of work but yet you say your confidence was still shaky well you know you have is that the life, sorry is that the life of being a freelance player or? yeah i mean you when you're freelancing if you're doing lots of work 
then you're confident you're in you're in good shape. I mean, it's not a case of just practicing every day. You have to play at a top level with an orchestra because it's like being match fit if you're a Premiership footballer. It doesn't matter how fit you are. If, if you're not match fit, you can't play at that level. And it's that mm. time on the pitch that you need. Time in orchestras that you... You, intonation um, style your ears are out on stalks that you're picking up on everything happening around you to play with a section that that is what s- slightly goes if you're not playing all the time that that's the most challenging thing with being freelance I mean now I've put my freelance career back on on the map recently it's much easier I mean I'm playing much more and uh, playing at a higher level and 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 enjoying playing the flute again um, it's when you you kind of have to step in and out that it's difficult. When you're when you're at college, it's a, it's a very different thing. You're in great shape the whole time. You're doing a lot of playing. The flute's always on your chops. Um, as you get older, life takes over, and you you have other things you need to look out for, and, and your family and mortgage and everything else. And so it's not you don't have the time, the luxury of time that you do as a student. Let's face it. Yeah, I've mentioned it before. You're still a young guy. Yeah, relative in the flute world. Yeah, if you could write a note. To a sixteen-year-old Ian Mullen, yeah, offering advice based on your own experience today, yeah, what would it be apart from don't do it? Um, I don't think it's not don't do it. I, the thing that I personally, if I'm being honest about my career, I think I've not taken all the opportunities given to me, especially in my twenties. So. At college, there's always more time than you think to practice. Even if you think you're practicing all the time, there's still more time. And that is crucial to, to create that foundation at that, that time in your life when you do have the time to do it that you don't later on. Um, so having a, a, a basic level of technique and, and understanding and actually being in shape, then what happens as you get older is that when you have big stuff coming up or an audition or a patch of work that you really want to get in shape for it's like being a boxer you get in shape for a fight so that you you tailor your practice to a point where you you know you do two three four hours a day you don't really need to do more more than three or four hours practice a day if you do you're not practicing properly uh, and you're not really achieving anything Uh, what you need to do is to to maintain muscle memory and be in shape so that you're prepared for anything um that, that comes your way so your note would say take every opportunity to practice yeah and notice when an opportunity comes up evaluate it yeah and don't be scared well it's a preparation as well preparation is key i mean not thinking back always work back from a goal and set yourself targets so that you get from a to d with the bits in between um, so to win an audition you'll need to play to a few people um, you'll need to do a couple of mock auditions to, to people that make you feel uncomfortable and that you put yourself through the process and visualise what's going to happen in the audition. Then you'll be much calmer in the situation um, to actually play at a much higher level and, and feel more confident. And and as I've used to do a lot of work with you, John Paul, about this kind of subject and, and using similar kind of materials. I remember a book that you kind of steered me towards, Powerful Forms for mm. Singers. But other things like that, it's um, at least 50% of it is how you come across physically and confidence-wise and posture and playing over the stand and confidently and being upright is things that I've failed foul of or come foul of recently with auditions um, when I haven't had the time to repair and the body language isn't as confident, as positive as it would be 
when you're much more prepared. And that is really weird because I'm going to move on to a subject which I know is dear to you. Yeah. Which is the subject of martial arts. Yeah. Because I've always known you as walking incredibly tall. Yeah. You've never stooped. Yeah. You almost float when you walk. Um, you're a black belt in jiu-jitsu and continue to pursue the study and training in martial arts in general. Yeah. When did you start and why? Um, I went for one class that was a disaster when I was at college. And it was at a time... The reason I started was I, I used to go to uh, the pub on Marlow and High Street, the top. And one of my <laughs> best top, friends... Yes. Yeah, one of my best friends uh, from the pub was a martial arts instructor. He, he represented our style of jiu-jitsu for the whole of Europe. And he's a, now he's a seventh degree black belt. And... He invited me to one of these classes, and actually it's with one of the other senseis that I teach with, Zippy. It was his first class as well. But at the time, he was probably about 18 stone, much taller than me. And um, he worked doors in some of the clubs in in, uh, in town, in Soho. So the first class was doing finger locks. And there was just I was so scared about doing something like that when I was at college, being a flute player, that um, it put me off, basically. But about in my mid-twenties, I kind of came back to it. And the way I came back to it was I used to go and watch the class and then come to the pub with everybody afterwards. And, and it was a social thing. And then I got back on the mat. And then it was just a progression. So I trained for six months. My body shape completely changed, not from doing weights. I put on about half a stone or a stone in muscle straight away from training three times a week and throwing people much bigger than me. And I enjoyed it. And then I did my first grading in our style. It's advanced white um, and then I thought, well, I'd like to get a coloured belt. I'd like to get a blue belt next. And then it was just a progression. So I went through all the belts uh, and eventually, after 10 years, got, got my showdown, my black belt, which was four years ago. And then I had to stop for a little bit. I took over the class, but then I had a problem with my eye. I had a mm, detached retina. That was retina. bad, wasn't it? Yeah, I had to stop everything. I couldn't drive or fly or anything. And, and it took a long time physically to get back to normality with that. It took about a year, I guess. But then I've kind of thrown myself back and more recently have had more time to to train and do other other things as well as jiu-jitsu. So I've been cross-training in other things, other martial arts and other styles and kind of combining everything um, and with gym as well just to try and um, stave off middle age and uh, keep flexible. That's the thing that I'm noticing now. And, and I've trained, I'm hopefully training tonight, but I've trained the last two nights as well as going to the gym and my body's screaming at me, whereas five or ten years ago I could do it very easily. But um, you, just, you just have to keep going, keep doing it, and uh, and just see how far you can get. Do you think it's helped for you to remain calm? Um, I think I don't get wound up about stuff so much. The thing I like about jiu-jitsu especially, as well as, well as the martial arts, is there can be a grey gray area with music. You can kind of fudge your way and lag in certain situations, but with a throw... You know, like in judo or jiu-jitsu, if you're throwing somebody five stone heavier than you, you either throw them or you don't. There's no half throwing them. Um, <laughs> so it's very black and white. It's, it's, you know whether you, what you're doing is working or it's not working. So uh, it's it's a very honest thing. And also the humility of it as well. The reason that we wear geese is to take the personality out of it and accordance to rank as well. Um, and that when you're doing techniques, you have a what we call a Tory and an Uki. An Uki is a person receiving the technique and a Tory is a person uh, applying the technique. And when you do something and you train together, you know that it's there going next. So you want to always have respect and, and look after your partner. But you also you have somebody to train with the next week. There's no point trashing somebody and then they're injured and you can't train with them. So is ego put to one side? 
uh, yes to to hopefully um it makes a much safer environment to, to do that especially as you get through the ranks and when you get to kind of brown especially but brown brown and black um it, you're doing techniques that 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 even if you try and do them nicely you can't do them nicely you, you they're going to hurt so you have to trust and respect the person you're training with otherwise it's um it's it's no fun does any of the focus that you've learned in the past 10 years has any of it been helpful to your flute playing i think so yeah i mean i don't get so wound up i mean i i struggled until recently i kind of had a bit of a breakthrough with auditions again but um uh with performance wise i've found that it's helped the certain techniques we we learn massage and pressure points um, as part of our jiu-jitsu and there's certain things that I do at, at the side of the stage or on the stage when the conductor's coming on that will calm me down in a, in a pressure situation uh, and also breathing as well um, I, I do a thing that I actually a trick that I was taught by um, picked up from Keith Underwood in the States and it's basically making an L shape with your right hand and putting it against your mouth almost like an, an inhaler and sucking very quickly and it, basically what that does is it just creates an oxygen rush and gets a lot of oxygen in the body so that when you take a big breath you've already done that whereas if you're trying to play La Pramidi and you do that take a big breath and you suddenly get a head rush it's very difficult to control the air coming sure. out at that point so I'll, I'll often do something like that or there's a pressure point by your elbow that relieves some tension that I do as well at the side of the stage so it's, it's kind of mechanisms, but it's just more an awareness, a physical awareness of your body and also what, how you deal with stress and, and knowing your body on that level. It just helps a lot more. And especially as you get older, you know what your body needs, whether it, you want to have caffeine or not have caffeine or you, you need to have more energy if you need to have a banana in the interval or, or something else, you know, that lots of things that people use. But um, you just get much more wise to, to, to know what what you what you can take i mean it's a bit like having a bank account if you've got a large overdraft you can go overdrawn if you don't then it's dangerous putting yourself in a pressure situation you, you're not quite sure what's going to happen and that's when things go wrong or you, you make a mistake you know be willing to sort of assess a situation and then try and navigate through rather than getting really angry and upset yeah so what are your goals for the future I think they they haven't they haven't changed from day one. I mean, I'd still at some point like to to win a big principal job somewhere. Um, in the UK, or are you willing to travel? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, my circumstances changed. I've got a, a daughter now. And it's, it's difficult. Yeah, she's to go. gorgeous, isn't she? Yeah, she's six and a half, and it's it's difficult to go, you know, mm. a long way away. Um, I, I was half thinking about going to Malaysia recently. I did a try try it for the principal job there, um, but it's. Somewhere like that is, is too far to be away from, from somebody, when your daughter or son, when they're growing up. So um, it, that was good because it made me realise that. Um, but I think just to enjoy playing. I mean, I, I just love going into to, to great orchestras and playing with great colleagues and, and having those experiences. And just to, to fill the diary with as much lovely playing as possible is, is really the short to medium term goal. And then if a job comes up, then, then that's great. But... Um, just to have some great musical experiences, you know, and that's, that's when I've learned the most is, yeah, it's great to have time to practice and really get in good shape. But the learning curve comes from playing with other amazing musicians. And, and that's when you, when you learn the most and, and really start to kind of develop your, your own kind of playing and game. So what's your gigs coming up? What, what um, I'm kind of doing uh, a few bits and pieces 
Um, I've got some uh, RPCO, Royal Philharmonic Concert Orchestra stuff coming up, which is just fun stuff. We're, we're going to Dublin next week and then Abu Dhabi to go and play at the Formula One uh, Grand Prix for a, for a week. Oh, that's trip. a tough gig, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so that, that'll be a fun trip, I'm sure. And then I've got some kind of more serious stuff with the, the London Philharmonic coming up. Um, I've got a trip to South Korea and America and some other bits and pieces as well. And um, it's doing a bit of ballet stuff with EMB, uh, English National Ballet, uh, and a few other kind of scratch bands as well. So the diary starting to fill up again. It's, it's encouraging. It's nice to see. And, and, and actually just to focus on just playing the flute again is great for, for me. It's, I really enjoy it. It's, it's my kind of passion. Well, Ian, I know you've got a martial arts class starting and not too distant, so I won't hold you too long. Thanks a lot for inviting me into your new apartment. No problem. Apartment, flat, bijou, <laughs> <laughs> whatever it is one would yeah. call it, with that most amazing view. I'm very envious, you know. Yeah, it's very, it's very relaxing living here. And let's not keep it too long until yeah. we get together again. Nice to see you, JP. Cheers, my friend. Thank you. Now, what a lovely guy Ian is. And I'll be back in two weeks' time for part two of my interview with Ian Mullin, this time looking at his advice for younger or newer flute players as they embark on their potential future in music making. So until then, have a great week ahead. Claire returns next week with Talking Flutes and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Happy fluting. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.